Hey, good morning, and uh, welcome to River Glen. Welcome, everybody. So good to see you. We have looked forward to this day for so long, and it just feels so good to have real people in the house, in the room here with us. Yeah, way to go. Thanks for coming. Welcome here in Waukesha, everybody over in Pewaukee. A big welcome to you, those of you joining us online. Uh, thank you for inviting us into your home through your devices. If you're new, my name's, my name's Ben, and just thrilled to have you uh, with us. Before we get started, just a couple uh, quick things. Those of you here in uh, Waukesha or Pewaukee, when you walked in, you received a rock, a little stone like this, and uh, we're going to talk about that more later on. If you're watching online, I encourage you, grab a rock if you have one nearby or some other object similar to a small rock so that you can participate when we get to that uh, later on. And then also, I want to let you know, next weekend, we're beginning a new series called Hey Google! Because more and more people Google questions uh, to find answers, like what's the weather going to be today, what's on TV tonight, who's saying this song. Google has all kinds of answers, uh, doesn't it? And more and more people, you know what, are actually Googling spiritual questions about God and, and faith. And so next weekend, we're beginning this new series. We're going to address some of the most commonly asked questions uh, that people Google, spiritual questions that people Google to find uh, answers. We're going to get into the Holy Spirit and what heaven's going to be like and why does God allow pain and suffering. I think it's going to be really interesting and really helpful, so I hope that you will uh, join us next weekend. Today we're going to wrap up uh, What Made Jesus Mad. It's based on this book by Tim uh, Harlow. Today I want to talk about a subject. It's really an emotion that all of us deal with to some degree, and that is the subject, the emotion of guilt. Guilt is a powerful feeling of remorse, regret, feeling disappointed in yourself because of something that you did or didn't do. And guilt often has a companion called shame. Guilt says, I did something bad. Shame goes deeper and says, I am a bad person. And all of us wrestle with guilt and shame to some extent. And today we're going to talk about how to deal with that. But here's what makes Jesus mad. We're going to discover that sometimes it's not because of something that we did or didn't do, but religion, religion itself can cause us to feel guilt and shame. And when that happens, it makes Jesus mad. Now, when I talk about religion today, here's what I mean. I'm going to use this phrase from Tim's book, graceless religion. Graceless religion removes love and compassion and focuses on keeping the rules. Now, rules are good. I mean, we need some rules, right? I mean, rules protect us from hurting ourselves and, and hurting other people. But graceless religion says that you must keep certain rules to get right with God and cleanse your guilt. But here's the problem. If rule keeping could cleanse our guilt and make us right with God, then Jesus didn't need to go to the cross. The cross was unnecessary because we can save ourselves by, by keeping uh, uh, rules. And that's why graceless religion makes Jesus mad, because it blocks people uh, from experiencing the love and grace of, of God. Now, today, I want to look at two encounters that Jesus had with graceless religion to see how it made him mad and to learn how to deal with our own guilt and shame. I want to look at this first encounter briefly. Here's what it says. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a, a deformed hand, a shriveled hand, was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day of rest. God commanded 
his people to honor the Sabbath by taking a day off of work each week, a day for rest. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's a good rule. Uh, God knows that we need rest. But these religious leaders, here's what they did. They added more rules on top of God's rule. They created 39 categories and hundreds of rules about what you couldn't do on the Sabbath day. For example, if a gnat landed on your arm on the Sabbath day, you couldn't brush it off. That was work. If a chicken laid an egg on the Sabbath day, you couldn't eat that egg because the chicken worked on on the Sabbath. Graceless religion adds more and more rules on top of God's rule. So these religious leaders called Pharisees, they watch to see if Jesus is going to heal this guy with a shriveled hand because they wanted to catch him breaking their rules. But Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, uh, stand up in front of everyone. And then Jesus asked them, the religious leaders, which is lawful on the Sabbath, do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill it. In other words, Jesus is saying, you know, helping someone who is, is handicapped is not breaking the Sabbath command. It's not breaking the Sabbath uh, rule. But they remained silent, and Jesus looked at them. Look at this. In anger. This, this made Jesus mad and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored and healed. And then the Pharisees went out and began to uh, plot with the Herodians about how they might kill Jesus. But I want you to notice how graceless religion, it makes Jesus mad because it adds more rules and it blocks people from experiencing the love and the grace of God. But it wasn't just a problem back then. We encounter graceless religion today. I came across this religious uh, sign. Uh, On the left is a picture of it. On the right, it's typed out so you can uh, read it. This sign has a list of people who have broken the rules and they're going to hell, okay? And God has some rules about some of these things, but there's, there's no love or compassion or grace on this sign. Not, not one word of, of love. And, and notice this. I thought this was interesting. Sports fans are, are on the list here. You know, they're condemned to hell. <laughs> really. I, had no, I, I have no idea how they came up with that or how, how sports fans got on the list. But that's what graceless religion does. It adds more and more man-made rules. Reminds me of an experience I had many years ago when I was in college. I had this job in the summertime. I traveled to summer camps for teenagers to minister to students. And uh, I'm at a, a church camp in, this, in, the, in the summer. It's in southern Illinois. And I get there, I'm wearing a Milwaukee Brewers t-shirt. And I'm just playing catch with a student, having a good time. But I broke one of their rules. And the camp manager called me into his, his office. The camp had a lot of dress code uh, rules, and I can understand having a dress code at a summer camp, but he told me to change my shirt uh, because of the name Milwaukee Brewers, and I asked why. Now, I want to be clear. It's not because he's a St. Louis Cardinal fan or a, a Chicago Cub fan. That's not it at all. Uh, he, said, uh, he said, change it because the name Milwaukee Brewers refers to alcohol. Yeah, I never really thought about it that way, uh, but I, I went ahead and changed my shirt, and I smile about it, but When I think back, what if, just what if a student who didn't follow Jesus came to that camp wearing a shirt like mine, and they they made him change his shirt? I mean, maybe we would have missed an opportunity to share Jesus with that student because of a silly man-made rule. That's why graceless religion makes Jesus mad, because it adds rules and blocks people from a personal relationship with God. Now, Scripture does 
have a command about alcohol. It says, uh, do not get drunk. Drunkenness is a sin. But here's what some religious people do. They say, let's go further and let's add another rule that says don't drink at all. Let's make that the rule. No alcohol. Abstinence from alcohol, which, you know, for some people is a good idea. I mean, that's wise for some people to not drink. But for those who make that choice, don't put yourself above others. Be humble. Don't look down at other people for having a drink. Because if we add more rules for everybody on top of God's rule, uh, that can create a barrier that blocks people from experiencing the love and grace of God. You know, many people have this idea Christianity is just all, all about rules, no fun. You know, just following a bunch of, uh, you know, religious rules, man-made uh, rules. Uh, Ned Flanders is this uh, hyper-Christian uh, on the uh, show The Simpsons, the longest-running television uh, show. Ned lives next door to Homer Simpson, and uh, he has a doorbell that rings, a mighty fortress is our God. Uh, he has an air horn that plays the Hallelujah Chorus, uh, that he takes the ball games. At Christmas time, he answers the phone, uh, Christ is born, who's on my horn? And at one point, he said, oh yeah, I, when I take a bath, I wear a swimsuit so as not to subject myself to my own nakedness. Yeah, you know, we might laugh at uh, Ned Flanders, but that's how many people view Christianity. Just a bunch of rules, no fun, just a bunch of religious rules, many of them man-made. Now, God has some rules, right? But God's rules are not burdensome at all. God's rules protect us from hurting ourselves and hurting other people, and they set us free, and they point us to Jesus and his love and his grace, and they bring us joy. But if we add more rules on top of God's rules, it gets in the way and blocks people from, from God's love and grace. All right, that's the first example. Now I want to focus on the second encounter Jesus had with graceless religion. And I want you to really try and put yourself in this story. Because this story, I think, is one of the greatest teachings that can help us deal with our own guilt and our own feelings of uh, shame. Let me set the stage for you. Let me set the scene for you. Jesus went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles for an entire week The people slept in tents to remind themselves about how God provided for them during their exodus from slavery in Egypt. So try and picture thousands and thousands of people sleeping in tight spaces, which actually creates an environment of temptation. They slept in close proximity, and it led to some promiscuity. Here's what happened. The story begins in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 2. It says, At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to uh, teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. Now, adultery is one of the Ten Commandments. Adultery is a sin. But these religious leaders don't show any grace or love or compassion for this woman. They make her stand before the group. I don't even know if she's presentable. It says she was caught in the act of adultery. I don't, I don't know if she had time to maybe even grab a sheet to cover herself up. And they publicly humiliate her. They have her stand before everyone. Everybody can view her. It's the most humiliating moment in her life, and where's the man? I mean, it takes two, right? 
They only brought the woman. And look at what they said to Jesus. Teacher, uh, this woman was uh, caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Back then, they would stone people as punishment. They would put somebody in a hole in the ground, and they would designate somebody from the crowd to drop some large rocks on top of the person, and if it didn't kill them or crush them, then the rest of the mob would, would just you know, grab stones and just pile on and, and start throwing rocks down at the person. And notice how it says they tried to trap Jesus, these uh, graceless religious leaders, because if Jesus says, uh, yeah, go ahead and stone her, then he's not loving. And if he says, let her go, it's like he's saying adultery is okay. They try to trap him, but look at how Jesus responds to graceless uh, religion. It says Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground uh, with, with, with his finger. Yeah. And uh, he, he starts to write in the sand. I want to show you the word that is used for the word write here. It's a compound word. Grapho means to write. Kata means against. Jesus literally, literally, he writes for the woman and against the religious men. He stands between a sinful woman and self-righteous Men. Now, it doesn't tell us what he wrote on, on the ground. Some people have thought maybe he wrote the names of the uh, religious leaders who held the rocks. You know, there's David, there's Michael, and so on. Maybe he wrote the sin, their worst sin, next to their name. Or maybe he wrote a verse from the Old Testament about pride or self-righteousness. I'm guessing. We don't really know what Jesus wrote in the ground. But John tells us how the story ends. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said, let any one of you who who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. He writes some more. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the oldest ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Isn't it amazing how Jesus overcomes graceless religion with love and grace and truth? And so I want to share with you three real simple applications from this story so that we can apply grace to our lives and our faith and to our church. Here's the first application. Leave with grace and land with truth. It's pretty clear from this uh, story that these religious leaders, they wanted to dish out a dose of humiliation and condemnation on this woman. But Jesus wants to dish out grace and love and truth. We can see that in the two statements he makes. He says to her, I don't condemn you. That's a statement of grace and compassion. And then second, he says to her, leave your life of sin. That's a statement of truth a statement of counsel. But here's what I've learned in my life. I need grace and truth. I need compassion and counsel, but I need one before the other. You know, I was thinking back to uh, when I was in eighth grade. I grew up in West Dallas, and I would walk to and from school every day. And uh, during the wintertime, my friends and I on the walk home, we loved to throw snowballs. And, you know, most of the time, the snow wasn't really that great for packing, but this particular day, the snow was packing great for snowballs. And so I'm packing this snowball on 76th Street, and it just so happens my favorite teacher, my metal shop teacher, is driving down 76th Street toward us while I'm packing this perfect snowball. Couldn't pass up the opportunity. 
And I mean, I threw my best fastball, hit his windshield, dead center, bullseye. I high-fived my friends, you know, this is awesome. And then the next day when I went to school, uh, my metal shop teacher kept me after class and he did not treat me the way Jesus treated that woman uh, caught in adultery. There was no grace, zero, zero grace. He took me out of metal shop class. He put me in a room for several days by myself. He made me handwrite chapters out of the textbook. But here's the worst part. Next day in the evening, our phone rings at home. I answer it. And the person says, could I speak to Mr. or Mrs. Davis? And I said, yeah. I turned and I said, Mom, uh, somebody wants to talk to you on the phone. And in that moment, it dawned on me, I know that voice. That's my metal shop teacher. I could not believe he called my parents to tell them what I had done. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, my parents are going to kill me. I've never had a teacher call home. But you know what? They didn't yell at me. They didn't pile on more punishment. Uh, they, they affirmed uh, their support and, and love for me. They said, you're better than this. And that was it. They led with grace, and they landed with truth. They gave compassion before counsel. And you know what? That's how God treats us. Look at what it says here in Romans. God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. God leads with kindness. God leads with, with grace, and then he lands with truth. And here's the reason God does that. Look at this. It's because there's more grace in God than sin in people. It's true. That's why graceless religion makes Jesus mad, because there's more grace in God than sin in people. It's true, and the world needs uh, to know it. John Weiss is a pastor in Lexington, Kentucky at this amazing church called Southland Christian Church, and I heard him talk about this concept of leading with grace, landing with truth, and he shared a story to illustrate what this looks like. And I, I just want to read this to you, read his story. He said, I preached a sermon on homosexuality in 2003, and uh, word got out in the city that I was tackling that subject, and it was the biggest attendance in the history of our church. People came, and I and, uh, had a simple point about how good theology and good psychology are always compatible. And at the end of it, I was in the lobby shaking hands with four young men who came up to me. They introduced themselves and identified themselves as being gay. Told me they had shown up that morning to heckle me. They sat on the front row, and they had a bag full of cartons of eggs. They were going to throw eggs at me. In the middle of this sermon, I thank them for not heckling or egging me. And then I said, hey, can I take you to lunch on Tuesday? And they said, sure. And so we started going to lunch on Tuesdays for 18 months. Every Tuesday, they met me for lunch. I got to know them. They got to know me. We laughed. We cried. I told them at one point, why don't you give me something to read? Try to change my mind. So they would give me things to read, and we would discuss it. And that led them to say, why don't you give us something, give us some stuff to read? And I said, oh, okay, sure. And so I started giving them some things to read. And one of the things I had them read were all the instances of where Jesus ate a meal with other people. And at the end of it, I said on a note, note card, just tell me what you learned. And one of them, I'll never forget it, wrote these words. People sitting under the table have a seat at the table. I said, you understand Jesus better than a lot of people. And 15 years ago, as a result of that statement, Allison and I started a goofy trend at our house where if you eat at our home, we hand you a Sharpie pen at the end of it, and we ask you to lay down on your back and sign the bottom of our table. Hundreds of people have signed their name to the bottom of our table, including four young gay men. 
And I want you to know that two of them have now had their name written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Two of them have surrendered to Jesus. Two down, two to go. I like that story. That's what it looks like to lead with grace and land with truth. And we can do that because there's more grace in God than sin in people. It's true. It's true. And the world needs to know it. And those of us that have been on the receiving end of God's grace, here's the second application from the story. Be a second chancer instead of a stone thrower. I mean, the only person in the story who really had the right to pick up a rock and throw it was Jesus. And he didn't even have a stone in his hand. So instead of adjusting our halos, you know what? Maybe we need to just take the halo off altogether and quit pretending that we're better than anybody uh, else uh, because we're not better than anybody else. We're different because we, we, we've been saved by grace. And we're different because we've been set free from the consequences of our sin, but we're not better. That's why in his letter to the Galatian church, Paul talks so directly and bluntly about our responsibility to extend grace to others because we have received grace from God. Look at what Paul says here. If someone falls into sin, forgivingly restore him, saving your critical comments for yourself because you might be needing forgiveness before the day's out. Stoop down and reach out. That's what Jesus did with the woman to those who are oppressed. Share their burdens and so complete Christ's law. And if you think you're too good for that, you're badly uh, deceived. Paul says, be a second chancer instead of a stone thrower. I want to show you a a unique picture I came across of uh, actor Mel Gibson uh, talking to Jesus on the set of his movie, The Passion of the Christ. When that movie uh, came out, some people criticized the idea of Mel Gibson uh, making that particular movie because he had gone through multiple divorces. He had struggled with alcoholism. He'd even gotten arrested, and some of those arrests drew public attention. Many people thought, he's not the guy to to make this movie. He's not religious enough. But I wonder if maybe he understands grace better than the average person. I wonder if maybe, maybe he's the right person for this movie about Jesus. Uh, you might recognize this well-known actor named Robert Downey Jr. He's one of the most successful current actors in terms of box office success. But again, a lot of problems in his personal life, in and out of rehab, in and out of prison. Recently, his peers in Hollywood gave him a Lifetime Achievement Award. And they told him, you get to handpick who you want to give this award. And uh, at the press conference, he said, he said this, when I couldn't get sober, Mel Gibson told me not to give up and encouraged me to find my faith. I couldn't get hired, and so he cast me in the lead of a movie that was actually developed for him. Most importantly, he said, if I accepted responsibility for my wrongdoing and embraced that part of my soul that was ugly, hugging the cactus, as he calls it, then I'd become a man. I did it. And it worked. All Mel asked in return was that someday I help the next guy in some small way. It's reasonable to assume at the time he didn't imagine the next guy would be him or that someday would be tonight. So on this special occasion, I would ask that you join me in forgiving my friend his trespasses and offering him the same clean slate you have given me. He's hugged the cactus long enough. You know, I was thinking about that phrase, hugged the cactus. And you know what? Jesus, Jesus didn't make us hug the cactus at all, right? Not at all. He hugged it for us when he hugged us 
and gave us grace. And he said, would you join me on this mission? Would you be a second chancer instead of a stone thrower? And then a third application from this story, live every day in the grace of Jesus. Grace is not a one-time gift that just wipes your slate clean and for, 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 for one time. Grace keeps giving. It gives you a new life. I mean, Jesus didn't tell this woman, you know, I forgive you as long as you never sin again or, you know, one more mistake and you're out. No, 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 no. He gave her a new life. I like the way the NIV translates what he said to her. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. He he gave her grace for a new life with a new identity. He no longer viewed her as an adulterous woman, but a daughter of God. He cleansed her guilt and healed her shame and set her free. Now, she'll still make mistakes and sin, but she lives in the grace and love and power of God. Of, of Jesus. Some people have a hard time with, with this story. Do you know that? Do you know that some of the early Christians actually removed the story uh, about the woman caught in adultery? They removed it from John uh, chapter 8 because it was so scandalous. Not what she did, but the grace that Jesus gave her. It's hard to accept grace, especially if we come from a background of graceless religion. It takes humility to accept Grace. I mean, she broke the law. God had a law against adultery, punishable by death. Maybe you wonder, why did Jesus just let her go? I mean, is he saying adultery is okay? No. Actually, you know what? Jesus did invoke the death penalty. But he took the penalty for her. He took the death penalty for her and, and me and for, for, for you. And so would you go ahead and uh, take out that rock? or uh, objects, take that out. I want you to hold that in your hand for a moment, just like those graceless religious uh, leaders. And uh, as you hold this rock in your hand, I want you to, here in Milwaukee, and Pewaukee, I want, you to, I want you to close your eyes for a moment. Watching online, I want you to close your, your eyes uh, for a moment. I promise I won't make you do anything uh, weird. I, I just want you to close your eyes, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to place yourself in the position of that woman. You're the woman caught in the act of adultery, humiliated in front of the entire world for the sins you've committed. And maybe your sin isn't what her sin was. Maybe there's something else. Maybe you're wrestling with something right now and you feel guilt and shame and judgment. Put yourself in her place. Can you feel it? And then here's what I want you to do with your rock. I'm gonna count to three. And I just want you to drop it on the ground as you stand in the middle of this scene with fear and trembling as graceless religious people stare at you. So, so, so here's what I want you to do. As I count to three, I want you to drop your rock. Ready? One, two, three. Now with your eyes closed, I want you to know the sound you just heard is the sound of grace. That's the sound of grace. Grace. And as you open your eyes, I want you to know there is no more condemnation on your life. When those who accuse you uh, walk away, they're just as guilty as you, but in a different way. And understand, Jesus stands between you and graceless religion, and he absorbs that blow for you. That's grace. That's grace. Make sure you you grab uh, a rock uh, around you and uh, take it with you today. As a reminder, maybe write the word grace on that, uh, that rock. I'm going to pray, and then 
we're going to share communion together. And if you receive Jesus, if you receive the grace of Jesus, you're welcome to commune with us. We've got communion available on the tables as you walk in uh, at both our locations. If you're watching from home, now's a good time to grab juice or a beverage to represent Christ's blood and a cracker or bread or some solid to represent Christ's uh, body. Let me pray for us. And then you can go ahead and take communion. Father, thank you that your grace applies to us today, to our sin, to our shame, to our deepest regrets and dirtiness and brokenness. Thank you, thank you for not just forgiving us, but healing us and setting us free. We are grateful people. We can't say thank you enough for Jesus. I pray that you would help us to see the amazing opportunity in front of us to be courageous in how we love and show grace and compassion and speak truth to others. I pray that you give us the heart of Jesus and make us the hands and feet of Jesus in a culture that needs your love, desperately needs your grace and truth and healing. God, we're grateful for the way Jesus interacted with the woman caught in adultery. Would you help us to represent Jesus in the way that we interact with others today. And it's in his name I pray, amen.